Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Okay, 1 Kings chapter 5, taking off where we started, left, left off last week. Uh, so some of you have asked about when we get to Chronicles, how are we going to do this? When we get to Chronicles, I think we're just going to not, we're going to take the time this time. Uh, but a lot of Chronicles is a repeat of Samuel and Kings from a slightly different era. So we're going to look at it from, when we get there, we're going to look at it from like, here's what Chronicles is trying to say with these stories. Um, and as we go through it, uh, this time we're going to do a lot more building up in the historical sense. Here's how it goes. Verse 1. Now Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon because he heard that they had anointed him king in the place of his father. For Hiram had always loved David. And Solomon sent to Hiram, saying, You know how my father could not build a house for the name of the Lord, his God, because of the wars which were fought against him on every side, until the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side and there is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. And behold, I propose to build a house for the name of the Lord my God as the Lord spoke to my father David saying, your son whom I will set on your throne in your place, he shall build the house for my name. Now therefore command that they cut down the cedars for me from Lebanon and my servants will be with your servants and I will pay you wages for your servants according to whatever you say. For you know there is none among us who has the skill to cut timber like the Sidonians. So in context, this is not chronological. We're going back to the very beginning of Solomon's kingship. The first chapters of Kings shows how he established the throne and got rid of some eternal enemies or challengers to the throne. But it seems that he's been doing this from the beginning. Because this is right when he takes the kingship, verse 1, he gets a note from allies. So when a new president takes over an office... One of the first things they do is all the other world leaders kind of connect with them and say, welcome to the club. You know, let us know if we can ever talk or if you need anything. Hiram does the same thing. In chapter 6, verse 1, the construction had started or will start on the temple, but this is prior to the construction of the temple. So we kind of backtrack from chapter 6, verse 1, and we start here. So it takes three years of preparation before they actually start to build the temple. And that's a significant number. Hold on to that thought. Um, chapters 1 and 2, consolidating the power for Solomon. Chapter 3, we see his relationship with God get established. Chapter 4, we see his administration get set up, what we did last week. And all these arrangements happen at the same time that he's doing this, which shows us something about Solomon. Solomon can spin more than one plate at the same time. right? So he's doing a lot of different things as he takes over the kingship. He's moving in five different areas. And this is just one of the areas that he's moving in, and it's significant. So after we see the kingship get established, the administration get established, the next narrative is the building of the temple. And in chapter 7 next week, it's the building of the palace and everything else. But this becomes the first primary major project to Solomon that he's going to dig into. Verse 1 talks about Hiram. Or Hiram. That goes, it's a reference to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 
And David and Hiram had a good relationship. David didn't go to war with every one of his neighbors. Tyre and Sidon are off on the coast, and they, instead of making war with people, make peace arrangements. It's kind of their culture. Because the one thing about Lebanon is it has lots of beautiful forests, and cedar trees is what they're known for, and they start providing them to David. And we see in Chronicles a stockpile of lumber already coming. Um, but what they need to do is they need food. They don't grow food in forests very well. So the, the Sidonians make alliances so they can trade their lumber for food, and they do it with every nation around them. And David's no difference. If you're not going to fight, and if you're not going to challenge the existence of Israel, we're perfectly OK at being at peace with our neighbors. So they have a relationship. What's interesting about this is that Hiram sends this note to Solomon as though you're going to continue the relationship with the son. And as David made peace with them, they're going to do the same thing. In fact, um, archaeologists have shown the royal sarcophagus that's been dug up at Byblos, the capital of this Sidonian era, has been dated to this person, Hiram. So there's mention of him on the sarcophagus. And they don't know if that's his thing, but he was buried, whoever was buried in that tomb was buried under the rule of Hiram. So Hiram's either the name of a person or like Pharaoh, it's the name of a role or a position during this period of time. Either way, in verse 3, the first two words of verse 3, it says, you know how my father David. Solomon's talking to Hiram like his dad and him were good friends. Like, you know my dad. And so there's a familiarity to this letter that gets sent, a close relationship. And the assumption is that what Solomon's saying in verse 3 isn't news to Hiram at all. Like, you already knew this about my dad. In other words, David's talking to even non-Jewish people about his God in such a way that they absolutely know what David believes. And we saw David bring all these rough ruffians together to serve him and learn what his word said. They're doing little Bible studies in the cave. But he was the same way with other world leaders when he became king. And Solomon just references that. You know how this is. And to help Solomon build the temple to Yahweh is a pretty significant honor. So it's interesting that the story of the temple starts with a Gentile helping the Jews out by providing the lumber for this construction. You can see there aren't lines drawn like we see in the first century when Jesus shows up. The Jews, the nation of Israel had no problem working with other people. And it's something to remind as they got a little persnickety in the first century to just remind them like Jews helped you build that first temple under Solomon or Gentiles did. So Hiram comes in has the wonderful honor of helping to build this temple. And then in verse 3, David could not build it. The reason he couldn't build it is because God said no. There was no other reason that David couldn't build the temple. So Solomon is referencing this, again, like Hiram understands the spiritual reasons why he couldn't build the temple. In other words, David was telling him, oh, I can't do this because God said not to. And Hiram's like, okay, Yahweh person, like maybe there was a distance there, or maybe David had actually, Hiram was actually a servant of Yahweh. And there seems to be at least a positive relationship between the two to where Hiram accepted David's faith, or, or he adopted David's faith, one of the two. First Chronicles 22.5, the Sidonians are sending those stockpiles to David. There were wars, um, and, and we see that there's, uh, that's the reason David can't do it. Verse 4, God has given me rest. I think it's cool that Solomon recognizes that the peace that he has isn't because he made it. And there's a deep humility to Solomon, and I think that's part of his wisdom. Remember, all of this comes after the story of, of God granting Solomon supernatural wisdom. 
So this is a promise of God's rest. Here it's literal. Solomon recognizes I'm at peace because of my, the battles my dad fought. And it's a privilege then and an image of this idea that the Jewish people fought a lot of battles so that the church could be a place of rest. Just kind of this template of this idea that there's, there's all this struggle so that we get to rest. We go six days a week fighting the battles so that on Sabbath we have rest on the seventh day. And Solomon's looking at that same image. Matthew 8, 16, 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's neither adversary nor evil occurrence. Solomon's giving Hiram the reason that I have peace and I don't have anything. The word adversary there in the Hebrew is literally the word Satan. There's neither Satan nor evil occurrence. It seems that the enemy has no breach on Israel right now. So because we're at peace, we can build and do things. What a gift. And Solomon, and that idea that when God builds his church and there's this thing that God does amongst his people, really the enemy can't touch it. And, this, and Solomon's recognizing the same thing. So look around. Like, this is a cool example. Just stop for a sec. Let's break the fourth window. Look around. We get to come in on Sunday nights and study the word and be at peace despite how different we are in this room. Yet outside those doors, the world is going nuts. And it gets more and more nuts as we go through 2,000 years since Christ. And then we see that God still provides a place of rest for his people all the time. And Solomon just sees that we're at rest. Gates of hell can't come against that. And there's a peace that passes understanding. So most people walking on earth have conflict all around. Solomon's one of the rare kings that comes into a kingship and there's simply no conflict. If you look at the history of the world, it's something like there's only like 40 years of all of human history where there wasn't a war happening somewhere. If you think of how unique this is in human history, that Solomon actually has a period of peace, and what does he ask of his people during that period of peace? Build a house for my name. So God, when he says that, when he's saying there's neither adversary nor evil occurrence in a world that the enemy kind of controls... That's supernatural. Like God's carved out this space and time to do this work of the temple. It's a big deal. It's a significant thing. God fights the battles or the father, David, fights the battles so the son can establish a house of peace. God the father fights the battles through the Old Testament so that the son, Jesus Christ, can create a house of peace. You see the comparison? So Solomon enjoys this and he's going to do it. Verse 5 says, A house for the name of the Lord. That's a non-typical way to say this. In the ancient world, you made a temple to a god. And the idea was the god sat in that temple. So the, when you look at the temple of Zeus, there's a big statue of Zeus in the middle of it, holding a little lightning bolt or something like that. Temple of Athena, there's a, a beautiful Athena statue right in the middle of it. What the Jews did was significantly different because when you walk in, there wasn't a temple to Yahweh because you make no graven image of this god. It's a God that's beyond shaping like that. So the fact that it's a house to the name of the Lord is kind of an interesting way that the Jews would phrase it. This isn't the temple of God. It's a temple for the name of God to reside in because God is unlimited, and yet the name of God can be celebrated in this particular limited building. Yahweh is everywhere. Nothing contains Yahweh, not even a temple. So I like how they phrase for the name of the Lord and it's just for the name. It's not for God. God can still act anywhere and does. So the place to build the house has been a mystery for all of the Old Testament up through David. 
Remember, we just recently had David told by God directly to buy the threshing floor of Aruna because that was the hill on which they were supposed to build the temple. So up until this time, God would always, God said to Joshua, I'm going to show you the place where I'll build the temple. So it's pretty exciting for the Jewish people that now they know the place and they're itching to make this thing, but God tells David to wait. And I think that the church works the same way too. We get excited about what we're doing and we're itching to do the next thing. And sometimes God says, we just want you to wait. Wait and prepare and get ready for it. So when it happens, it happens, right? And it's been a mystery. So they're as excited for those of us. We've been going through the Bible chapter by chapter for five years now, right? Almost five years. Five years we've been waiting for the place where God would make a house for his name. And we're finally here, right? It'll take us another 20 years to finish, but... We'll all be old and gray. Zach will have a mustache down here. They've been looking for this place as long as longer than we've been looking for this place. But now they got the place. Let's dig in and do the work. And they're going to get to do it. So for those people that were waiting on the Messiah and they didn't know the name of Jesus yet, this is the house where the name would reside. This is the place on the planet where the name of the Messiah is going to get revealed to the world. This is the hill on which... Jesus is going to get crucified. This is an amazing location that we now have revealed to us. I always talk about the Old Testament. It's a progressive revelation, and we've been narrowing in on things. And in 1 Kings, we still don't know the name, and we don't know the time, but we now know the place. That's a huge piece of this puzzle that gets put together. So this is all about Israel. It's all about focused on now this town of Jerusalem, and it's all now focusing on this, this Mount uh, Moriah, location. This is, a, this is kind of a special place. So from, Revel, from the, all the prophets will note this place from here on forward. And in Revelations, this is still the place where God's going to set things up. New Jerusalem's the only city that's mentioned in the future prophecies, that there will be a new Jerusalem, a new location or place for worship to happen. It's kind of neat. I'm going to go back to Deuteronomy 12. So flip left in your Bibles. And I think this is just to remind us where this came from. And I'm going all the way back to when God's talking to Moses to show you just the anticipation that the Jews would have had for this temple. So Deuteronomy chapter 12. They're being told what to do when they get into the Holy Land. So they've been told where they're supposed to go in the land, but they don't have the location yet. Deuteronomy 12 verse 3. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire, chop down their carved images and their gods, destroy their name out of that place. No other god gets worshipped in this land. And you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes and put his name there and make his habitation there. This is pretty cool, right? They've been looking for this since Moses. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, your contributions that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd out of your flock, and there you shall eat before the Lord, because it's all about the barbecue. <laughs> and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. That's what you're looking for. It's not just a location for religious purposes. It's a location so they can hang out and party here, right? You're going to feast at this location. Free will offerings, those wave offerings, they come back as beautiful 
beautiful steamed barbecued beef, lamb chops, even pigeon if you cook them right. They're not so bad. Peace isn't the absence of war. It's the presence of God. And Solomon gets that. It's the, the not having war just gives you rest, but without God's presence, rest is worthless. So put the work into building that house of God. Solomon's being faithful to the commandments of God now that they know the location. And that mystery has been answered. The Lord spoke, verse 5. I love how Solomon shares what God has called him to. And I think this is a great way to talk to every non-believer we know. You know what? This is what God's got me excited about. This is what I'm doing. That's your story. How do you deny that to other people? This is what I'm working on. And think of the honor, even the stone cutters and the tree cutters. Like, I'm cutting trees for the house of the Lord. I'm cleaning toilets for the house of the Lord. I'm sweeping floors, making food, prepping teachings, getting music ready, making the food, cleaning up afterwards for the house of the Lord. And that idea that everybody that gets to be part of this, they can look at that temple and say, I helped with that. But they can't claim that they did that. And we'll get to that as we go through it. Well, we'll skip that page in notes. Joyful sharing, sharing of all this becomes our reality that we share with other people. We're part of building something. I think that's so much better than Christians running around telling people what to not do. Like, stop doing that. Tell people what you are doing. And it's a much more effective way to bring people in. The gift here is significant. Sidonians were world-class craftsmen. The Egyptians mentioned the Sidonians to bring lumber down to help them do their thing. Like, this is part of what they do. So, you, and, and I make reference to Egypt because it's on the Palermo Stone, another archaeological find where they reference the Sidonian wood. So this is world-class stuff. And the cedars of Lebanon are famous, and they smell good. Like if you, I was going to bring cedar and pass it around, but that felt a little kindergarten to me. But if you really want to smell cedar, I got some out in my garage, and you're welcome to come help sort wood. Verse 6 says, I will pay you wages. I love that Solomon doesn't take this offer of friendship for granted, right? Not only is he going to take this offer of friendship from Hiram, but he's going to say, look, I'll pay all your workers. I'm not here to rip you off or take something from you. God will not be a debtor to anybody. He doesn't need your money, right? So he'll take care of that side of things. More detail on that when we get to Chronicles. But Solomon treats this as an economic alliance with another nation, and he and pays them a compliment as he does it. Right? This is good diplomacy. Verse 7, so it was when Hiram heard the words of Solomon that he rejoiced greatly. Another indication that maybe he's, he loves the Lord Yahweh too. David brought him over to the side. Blessed be the Lord this day. And that Lord there is actually Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. Blessed be the Lord this day for he has given David a wise son over his great people. Makes you think with verse 7 that Hiram was a believer, Right? And this relationship is just a godly man to another godly man. Either way, David was so passionate about his God that he shared it with other world leaders. I just think that's great. Um, in 2 Chronicles, Hiram calls this God the creator of heaven and earth. A little more detailed description. Josephus in the Antiquities has records of these letters that went back and forth between Hiram and Solomon. And they're kept not only in the Jewish records, which we're reading, but they were kept in the, the Sidonian records too. And Josephus references both archives as records of these letters. So in this day, you would write a letter, but you'd have your scribe copy it. So you would keep a copy for yours and then mail the other copy. Kind of like a copy machine, but you had humans doing the copy machine work. 
until machines took their work away from them. Acts 12.20, the area of Tyre and Sidon is still dependent on imported food when we get to Acts chapter 12. Just a little reference there. So this trade of food for labor and, and lumber uh, is, is absolutely something that defines this region. Verse 8, then Hiram sent to Solomon saying, I've considered the message which you sent me and I will do all you desire concerning this, concerning this cedar and the cypress logs. Cypress is like a pine. It's, for, it's two by fours. It's for framing. It's for building scaffolding. It's a cheap, solid wood that you can do stuff with. The cedar, on the other hand, is aromatic. It's what you line blanket chests with or you put inside your drawers or you make little cedar eggs and you throw them in with your clothing. It just smells wonderful. And I'm assuming you've all smelled cedar, but if you haven't, let's fix that next week. Um, so he's providing them both, the, the working wood and the, the highly valuable aromatic wood. Verse 9, my servants shall bring them down from Lebanon to the sea. I will float them in rafts to the sea by the place you indicate me. And I will have them broken apart there, and you can take them away, and you shall fulfill my desire by giving food for my household. I imagine lots of Sidonians in red and black plaid, you know, with little lumberjack hooks, <laughs> singing lumberjack songs, shipping it all down the coast. Um, so he even comes up with a plan to do it. This is a typical business arrangement. Yes, let's make a deal, but the people with the expertise say, here's how we're going to get this done. So they bring him to a place called Joppa. Ancient Joppa becomes a key port for Israel. This arrangement Solomon makes gives Israel their first major seaport, which they didn't have before. And a seaport on the Mediterranean unlocks trade with the entire Mediterranean. So in a friendship between two godly people, God does something really significant for Israel economically. Later on, we're going to see how wealthy Israel gets. Part of why they're wealthy is they're not just doing the north-south trade route anymore. By opening up Joppa because of this relationship, they open up an east-west trade route that is going to make them at a crossroads or a giant cross on the middle of the planet for trade. And this is going to be the center of this. Today, Joppa is just north. They, they found the ruins of Joppa, so they didn't want to build on it. But when the Jews came back to Israel in 1948, they wanted the seaport reopened, but they didn't want to wreck the ruins of Joppa. So they built another city just south of it called Tel Aviv. And it's their major airport uh, city. It's their access to the rest of the world. You go to Israel, you're going to land in Joppa. Because you can't really do an airport in the hills of Jerusalem. Like It's not where you put a landing pad. So Joppa becomes Tel Aviv today. And it's still one of their most significant sites. Verse 10. Then Hiram gave Solomon cedar and cypress logs according to all his desire. And Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20 cores of pressed oil. Thus Solomon gave to Hiram year by year. Every year he gives what amounts to 13 million pounds of wheat. 13 million pounds of wheat. This is a national trade relationship, right? So this is more wheat than I can eat, and that's a lot. 21,000 pounds of oil. And this is the good stuff. This is the refined olive oil that's good for your health. You know, you put it in little pills and eat it, and it makes you live to 120. Um, it's pure olive oil. All of this, all of these millions of pounds of wheat, you got to remember, they didn't put it on a semi-truck or a train. They moved this stuff by hand. This takes thousands of workers 
to get things from the grain fields of Megiddo over to Joppa to the sea, and you take the logs and swap them out for barrels of wheat and oil, and this is just a regular trade route set up. Historically speaking, other than Egypt, this is one of the first major trade routes that we have record of in ancient documents. And it gets established because they both love the Lord and they're going to do something good for the kingdom. I just think the connections are great. Verse 12. So the Lord gave Solomon wisdom. <laughs> this is all evidence of the wisdom that Solomon had. It wasn't just botany and trees. It was trade relationships and economics. Like there's a level of intelligence with Solomon, wisdom here, that's absolutely wonderful. And he's doing things the world has never seen before, like national trade routes and making these kinds of relationships. Um, so the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him, and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty together. Bana, world history now has peace treaties being signed. Who invented peace treaties? Well, if you read chapter 5 of 1 Kings, verse 12, we have the first peace treaty, a treaty in a time of peace, where there's an arrangement of economic benefit to one another. It's not a peace treaty that ends a war. There's been plenty of those. But a treaty that gets made between two nations at peace, that's a wonderful relationship. A basic international trade agreement. Food for lumber, super easy. Don't mistake this, however, for the Sidonians doing ministry because there is a trade relationship. They're getting paid for what they're doing. And so it's not just a gift that they're giving to the Lord. It's something they're being paid for very fairly. So to be paid for that service is, is now you know, a relationship, but it's not necessarily the Sidonians doing ministry or anything like that. Solomon's still showing wisdom. Back in 2 Samuel 10, uh, Hiram uh, The same king sends a delegation to David after he beats the Ammonites and says, hey, I just want to be at peace with you and have a relationship. Um, I'm sorry, no, 2 Samuel 10 is the, when David takes over as king, remember he sends a peace delegation over to Hanan of the Ammonites, and then they take his men, cut off their beards, take their pants off, and send them back half naked. Remember that? Think of how different Solomon is in the same situation, Right? He has people coming over, and instead of thinking they're spies and diminishing them somehow, he takes them in and makes a relationship that's pretty fruitful. What if Hanan did that with David at the very beginning? Like, how blessed would the Ammonites be if they just made peace with Israel and made a trade relationship? Just a thought on the side. So you got wisdom from Hiram, wisdom from Solomon. We get to verse 13. Then King Solomon raised up a laser force, not a laser force. That's a different generation. <laughs> Guys, keep me honest. Then King Solomon raised up a labor force out of all Israel, and the labor force was 30,000 men. And then he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They were one month in Lebanon, two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the labor force. We saw that last week in, in chapter 4, verse 6. And this is how they got paid. This is interesting. They have this relationship with them, and the expert craftsmen are the Sidonians, but Solomon raises up a workforce, a significant one, sends them to Sidonia, or Tyr and Sidon, and has them work for the gifted craftsmen. That's super smart. He's teaching Israelites to learn how to do lumberjacking. This is brilliant. Like, there is a point where Solomon realizes it's to his benefit to send the workers, because now he's got people learning. 
And there's nothing wrong with menial labor when you're learning something and you're getting new skills and you're training up. Not only that, but think about this. The Sidonians just promised to do all of this for Solomon and he sends them, how many was it? 30,000 people to help with the work. So the Sidonians can just do the easy stuff and put the grunt work on the Israelites. And Solomon puts his people to work. One of the best indicators of a prosperous nation is that people have jobs and they go to work every day. They work in shifts. The concept of working in a shift where you're on and then you're off and then you're on and then you're off, what Solomon's doing is he's protecting the home lives of his people. You're off working for a month, but you're, then you're going to be home with your family for two months. So as a leader, he's not just putting out slave labor. He's actually got this humane way of doing work in shifts. The word labor force there in the Hebrew is actually the word tribute. So it's a little different than how we'd understand the word labor force, like this was a tribute that people gave. So building the temple, I think we need to understand they use words like that because being part of the temple construction was a tribute. It was, I think when they started out, it was a huge privilege. It was something people were happy to be doing. Like, I get to be part of the temple construction. And so it's an honor. So for a family, if you have a huge family network of people and you got herds of sheep, you're going to take little Johnny and send him off to work on the temple. And what a pride for the family. That whole family can say, yeah, we got three people working on the temple right now. But they're back for two months to help out at home. Then they could go donate or give tribute to go work on this temple. So to be able to do that with 30,000 people shows you the enthusiasm of Israel around this project. And again, those things are just, they're not buried, but thinking about these verses for just a second or two, I think, helps. Verse 15. Solomon had 70,000 who carried burdens, 80,000 who quarried stone in the mountains, besides the 3,300 from the chiefs of Solomon's deputies, who supervised the people who labored in the work. Huge workforce. Verse 17. The king commanded them to quarry large stones, costly stones and hewn stones, to lay the foundation of the temple. So Solomon's builders, Hiram's builders, and the Gebelites quarried them, and they prepared timber and stones for the temple. Jewish legend is that during the seven years of cutting stone, not one worker was injured, and not one worker got sick in the ancient world. That's not biblical, but it is in kind of the Jewish records. And they claim that while they built this temple, these family, these people that worked on it got healthy. Quarrying stones a notoriously hazardous business, especially if you're building like pyramid-sized stones, right? They fall on somebody and you just get splatted. Like this happened all the time in ancient quarries. You put the least valuable people to work in the quarries because they died. So again, Jewish tradition was, they were shocked at the year after year, nobody got hurt. How does that happen? They had three kinds of stones. I think this is kind of interesting. There's large stones, gadol in the Hebrew, which means great in substance or number, so common stones. There are just tons of them. Pebbles, gravel. Then they have costly stones, yakar, prized or valuable stones, almost like gemstones. We're getting cut out of these mines too or marble, or something that would be a highly valuable, visually appealing stone. And then you get hewn stones, gazet, great word. Cut or dressed or squared stones. These would be the actual building stones for the temple mount and for the temple itself. So three different kinds of stones. The tone here, and I, the reason why it's, you know, it kind of stands out, verse 17, why are they listing all these stones? I think the point here is that God uses all different types of stones. 
Like this was a massive effort, took all kinds of people to do it. All kinds of stones were brought to the, t brought to the glory of God. And, and all of this temple area is going to get paved with marble. So Solomon's temple was smaller than the second temple, Herod's. Herod's was, Herod was just like, let's make it huge, but he built it out of cheap like Home Depot materials. Solomon kept a little smaller temple when we get to the cubits, but everything was first-rate material, all of it. So Solomon chooses to use quality over size in his service to God, only the best for God. And remember, this is all fulfilling a promise from Exodus 15, 17. You'll bring them in, plant them in the mountain of your inheritance in the place of the Lord, which you've made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary of the Lord, which your hands have established. They're making all these stones, but no one individual can claim that they built the temple. This kind of thing. So it speaks to how God builds things. It speaks to how God builds the church, to be honest. And this is all, you go to Hebrews, this is all an image of what God's doing in the history of the world. Think of how God builds his church with a variety of stones. Lots of different people. Paul talks about the parts of the body all coming together. One question is, what kind of stone are you? That's a good Sunday school question, right? When you're in the church, what kind of stone are you? I'd say, I'm a rolling stone. It's a bad, bad dad joke. God builds with strong foundations is another way to look at this. When God builds something, there's three years of foundational work before it, before it becomes the temple. Before there's anything to look at, God takes time with foundations. He builds strong foundations before he does a great work. A lot of times you look at revivals, and if you read the history of revivals in just the American revivals that I've read about, there's years of, of foundation laying before the big, exciting revival happens. Years of it. If you look at some of the resistance to communist Russia, again, live not by lies, read the book, years of foundation building before the resistance had to be there. But God did that foundation work, and he does it with his church with a whole variety of kinds of stones. Luke 6, 48. It's, it is like a person building a house who digs deep and lays the foundation on the solid rock. And when the floodwaters rise and break against that house, it stands firm because it's well built. When God builds things, he builds them well. When we build things, they're crud. But when God builds them, they're wonderful. So when God is building something in our life, is it rooted in the word of God? Is it on a foundation of his, his word and his law? Or are you building your own constructions that fall apart as soon as the winds blow? God uses this temple as an image of Christ. This morning we are talking about Hebrews saying that very thing. Isaiah 28, 16 says it too. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I'm placing a foundation stone in Jerusalem, a firm and tested stone. It's a precious cornerstone that's safe to build on. Whoever believes need never be shaken. Who's the stone and who's the cornerstone? Jesus himself claims that he's the cornerstone. That God said he would place in Jerusalem and that's where Jesus' ministry is consummated. If you build your life on anything, build it on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ who laid a foundation for you and God took plenty of time and did it out of quality materials. And putting your life on the Lord Jesus Christ is the firmest stone. So the tabernacle gets built by Israel this is the next phase. Now the temple's getting built by Israel. But then you get thrown in here, these Gebelites. Who the heck are the Gebelites? We've been going five years. Gebelites have never been mentioned. They just pop up magically. 
whole group of people helping with the construction of the temple we know nothing about. God builds his church the same way. And I think some of the early Jewish Christians were a little surprised at how quickly the Gentiles jumped on board. Wait a second, this new covenant's for the whole world? And God starts bringing in people that nobody expected would show up. I love that about the church. First time I went to a church that was awake and alive, Steph and I just went around going, did you notice the different people in that room? Like there's Farmer Joe in his overalls and there's business person in the suit and there's little old lady with her corn hat thing on and you're looking around the room going, there are some different people in this room. And God does that. The Gebelites just show up and praise God for the Gebelites because they help us relax a little bit. It's not just about the Jewish people. It's the, the Sidonians are, are jumping in here with the Hiram's people and the Gebelites are in on it. And when God builds things, he doesn't just build with the people that he's chosen to, do the, to lead the work. He lets other people in on the project. And the church looks the same way. So Solomon, Israel, and this temple are going to bless all nations. That's the promise. And anyone who seeks the love of God has a place they can look that's an image of the things to come, the temple of God. All this is a shadow of what's to come. We've got to keep that in mind. That's the promise to Moses. First Kings chapter 6. We good for another chapter? Told you it was a long one tonight. We're halfway there. So let's look at what the temple looks like with that idea that this is all an image of things to come. And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. Amazing specificity around when the temple gets, starts to get built. In fact, we haven't had that kind of specificity. I told you that when we get to Kings, we'll get exact dates. Verse 1 of 1 Kings 6 is where we get the earmark first dates that we can. In fact, everything else in the Bible, when historians try to date things, tried to guess when David ruled, they do it off this verse because we now have an exact date. The measure of time then is from, we can say that the exodus of the Jews happened in 1447 BC because of this verse. We can just go back from it. Jewish calendars are solid. We can date everything because we got the day, the month, the year locked in right here. So that's it. In other words, all of human history to this point hinges on the temple being established. Everything behind it, everything in front of it, the only time that changes is when the new covenant is founded in Jesus Christ, which is why we, we set the new timer by, by Jesus' resurrection. There's Anne Domine, the year of our Lord, and there's BC, before Christ. And that's, they're changing that now, but the world loves to get Christ out of all of that conversation. All of human history is earmarked by Jesus Christ. That's zero is the date that's there. And that's going to stay in place, I have a feeling, until there's a new covenant, right? God sets his clock by it. Interesting on that point. Another thing that's interesting is the year that gets marked is the temple, not Solomon's reign. We'll see a lot of this in Kings. Somebody came in this year of so-and-so's reign and that sort of thing. You'd think all of human history then, if Solomon was in charge, would be based on when he started his kingship. But it's really not about Solomon's kingship. It's about the temple. It's about God's work. And God works that way. So they've gone 480 years without a temple. They had a tabernacle. This is a massive cultural shift for the Jews. Huge shift. Now you're not going to move around and have God go with you everywhere you go. 
Now God's going to have a location that you go to it. So every year they go to Jerusalem for their Passover feast, for their festivals, and they have a central location. So huge shift in how they're going to operate in the kingdom. They could have maybe gone less than 480 years, but God just redeems the time. Like they screwed up and had to spend 40 years in the wilderness. They wasted their time and didn't get certain things done. But as they followed the Lord, they've brought it into it, and God took all that time to prepare them for this new covenant, this new setup. Three years of timber collection before they start construction. David gave the plans. He even gave worship plans in First Chronicles. Like he even told Solomon how the singing arrangements would work. And we'll get there in Chronicles, but like David made everything he could do except construction. So God said, you can't build it. And David's like, oh, I'll do everything else. So it's all laid out. The father makes the plans. The son sees them through. See the imagery? Everything's laid out. Three years of preparation. Jesus had a three-year ministry before the temple is built, before it's established, before it is finished. Moses makes the tabernacle, but he doesn't get to enter the land. David claims the land, but he doesn't get to build the temple. Solomon gets to build, but he doesn't get to take credit for the plans. No human gets credit for this thing. God just orchestrates it that way. Solomon, though, is carefully moving forward. He immediately starts to prep with Hiram in the last chapter, and then verse 2. Now, the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, its length was 60 cubits. In Minecraft, that's 60 cubes. Its width was 20, and its height was 30 cubits. A cubit's about elbow to forearm plus about half. So a cubit is about that big. And you know in Minecraft, like two cubits is a little person, so it's kind of close. So if you want to build the temple in Minecraft, you're going to be fairly close to what it would feel like to walk around inside the temple. Or you can go online and watch the YouTube clips of it. 60 cubits. Its width was 20 cubits. Its height was 30 cubits, about 45 feet tall. The vestibule in the front of the sanctuary of the house was 20 cubits long across the width of the house, and the width of the vestibule was extended 10 cubits from the front of the house. This is stuff where I wish I could just skim, but we're going to read every word of the Old Testament. And he made for the house windows and beveled frames. And against the wall of the temple, he built chambers all around. Against the walls of the temple and all around the sanctuary and the inner sanctuary, thus he made side chambers all around it. This is different from the tabernacle. Tabernacle was a tent standing by itself. The temple is a cubit building that has these apartments all the way around three sides of it. So, it, and they're, so it's significantly different in design, but it's still a shadow of things to come. The lowest chamber was five cubits wide, the middle was six cubit wide, and the third was seven cubits wide, for he made the narrow ledges around the outside of the temple so that the support beams would not be fastened to the walls of the temple. This is really important. The actual temple kind of had a scaffolded thing, right? Like a little staircase going down. So when they built these apartments, that staircase made it so you could build out a little apartment thing off of it. Notice the lower level is five foot, the next one is six foot because they're going up the staircase and then seven feet. And they laid them on these beams so the apartments rest on the temple, but they never break the wall of the temple. No nail pierces the temple. And that, the idea that these Levites maybe lived or did storage in these apartments or these little dorms that are around there, they're there for service, but they don't actually breach the temple space. It's separate and it's holy. There's a division between this building and these apartments. Does that make sense? But on the outside, because they're scaffolded that way, 
it would be perfectly flat, so from the outside you wouldn't see the scaffolding, you'd just see a totally flush kind of side of the building. And then you're thinking, well, where are the doors to this? Well, they're going to tell us. So you get a 45-foot-tall box, not too fancy all by itself, but it's going to get decorated. I want to go to Hebrews 9 real quick and just connect. This is how Hebrews looks at the temple, tabernacle. We'll get there next week in the morning teaching. But when Christ appeared as a high priest to the good things that have come, then through the greater and the more perfect tent, not made with hands, that, th that, that is not of this creation. Thus it was necessary, Hebrews 9.23, for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with the rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. It's important that this human temple has all these sacrifices to make it pure and make it an image of holiness. But for the heavenly temple that God's building, we don't need to do that because it's already pure. So this idea that these things, like not putting nails into the side of the wall, not breaking that stone with human hands, the idea is that it's an image that humans don't build God's houses. Even in this case, even the shadow of that has that same thing. Humans don't build this. Humans don't live on the temple, right? They live next to the temple. Or they don't live in the temple. For Christ is entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Right? So all of this is an image of heaven and what it should look like. So we're really, in this sense, as we go through this chapter, we're really looking at the connections with the New Testament because that's where some of this gets interesting. Verse 7. And the temple, when it was being built, was built with the stone finished at the quarry so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built. In the Old Testament, we've seen a lot of that. They build these altars, and God says, no human hand shall cut the rocks to make an altar for me. And the idea is that God's going to take natural substances, but human hands don't do it. So it's important to keep this kind of reverence, this respect, that they don't hammer the stones anywhere near the temple mount. So when you're on the temple might, even during construction, you don't hear hammers. Like maybe it gives God a headache or something, but no hammers on the temple mount. Think of the work this ad. That means the noise, the dirt, the dust of chiseling rocks, that powder that gets in the air, all of that gets breathed by the quarry people far, far away from the temple mount. That human hands work happens far away. So there's some powerful connections here. 1 Corinthians 3 do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. The New Testament believers saw the temple as an image not only of Jesus Christ as the temple, but as we enter into Jesus, the body of Christ, the church, we're building God's temple, the church. It's a different image, different format. There's no physical building, but there's something there that the gates of hell cannot penetrate. And the church is there. And again, in Corinthians, they make that point. God wants the work of the stones, us, to never be thought of as done by human hands. What God does in us isn't done. at the, Like, you come to church and you're a stone that's coming from different places all over the metro, but God does that work on you all week. And when you come together in the body of Christ, you can't take credit for that work because God's doing that work in your life. The hammering of the stone happens over here, but when we come together as the body, there's something different and pure about it. And I know it's kind of a, a distant connection, but again, it's one they make in uh, Corinthians. 
People labor, and we say, well, if I did the work, then I say, I did the work. If you look back on your life and see what God's done in your life, and you don't quite know how to account for it, that stone was chiseled far away from the temple. God did that work. You didn't do the work. That's the whole point. So God can take the glory for it. So all, this, all these different things are there. None of us get to take the credit for the church. Nobody built the church, you know, unless you're Joel Olstein, you know. But, but there's a problem with that when any one person says that they can build things. It's why I think church leaders have to be real careful to not put their will on what happens because it's so much more fun to watch God do it. God brings those stones from all over the place and they build a new building. And we get, then can enjoy it, see it, and give God the glory for it. That's how it's meant to be. None of the workers chiseling the stone got to see the finished temple until it was all done. They might not even know where the stone they work on fit in the building. But for generations, they can say, you know, hey, your relative got to work on that temple. We don't know where or how, but he, we were all part of building that up. And God works through his people to build things that glorify him. It's been the pattern forever. 1 Corinthians 3.8. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive their own reward according to their own labor, for we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, and you are God's building. Direct connection. This is how God works. We all do different things, and somehow or another the church happens. How does that work? So the stone cutters are told what to cut precisely. Here's the other thing. Cutting the stones away from the Temple Mount adds work. Think of the extra work this takes. So much easier to look at where you need to put the rock, chisel it out, and get it to fit. Like, look at the Incan walls, like super cool fitting rocks. But the Temple Mount, they had to precisely give those orders for someone else to obediently carry out so that everything fit together at the other end. It takes extra work. It takes extra time. It's so much easier if we come up with a strategic plan and then carry it out. It's so much more time and more work to let God do it. And everything in our flesh is like, we need the plan. And God's like, no, you need to be doing the work. And we need more people that are willing to work than willing to make plans. And the church happens. So every obedient person gets to be part of this, but none of them get to claim that they did it. So you got the people cutting stone, people serving food, people hauling lumber, people cleaning the bathrooms, people doing all of these acts, and they can all say they helped to build the temple. What an honor for all of Israel, for the Gebanites, for the Sidonians. We helped to build that. And we were part of that plan. It sounds silly, but that reverence in construction is kind of important. Paul was proud to do his part in the church. 1 Thessalonians 2.9. You remember, brethren, our labor and our toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. I came and I preached the gospel to you, but I'm super proud of the fact that I never asked for money from you ever. What a gift for the body. What a gift for the church. And how did Paul do it? He put in the extra work. It was way harder for him to just make his own cash, to work full-time and do ministry. A lot of people say, I don't have time for ministry because I'm working full-time. Paul didn't seem to have a problem with that. He worked full-time and he did ministry. Amen for Paul. And it's super productive. God blessed him in doing it. So we become sacred to God, I think, when we consecrate our work to God and we give it to God and we obey God when we do it. Everything that we consecrate to God makes life a little bit more harder. That's called sacrifice. 
Like most of us could have things we could do for our day-to-day -day lives on a Sunday night besides studying the Word. We could be home doing something that helps us in some other way. So to be here studying the Word on a Sunday night, there's a sacrifice that goes along with that, a commitment. And God looks at that and says, that person, they're willing to cut stones for me. They're willing to do the work. They're willing to put that extra toil on their life. I knew one young lady, bless her heart, who had a lot of schoolwork to do, and she wants to get straight A's. She's like, I'm just going to let the schoolwork maybe go a little bit so that I can be at Bible study. What a sacrifice. What a consecrate, What a holy, sacred thing. Not because she's been told to her because she has to, but because she wanted to. And that voluntary gift from the saints, God looks at that and just smiles on it. What a gift. What a holy thing. It's amazing. So the greatest works of God, I think, are done silently. They're done without visibility. They're done under the radar. They're done where God sees them and maybe other people don't. So as God builds the church into a heavenly temple, the work is done here on earth, and it all comes together in the new Jerusalem. We refine before we shine. And God does that work. And he did that work in each way. It represents itself throughout the New Testament. Jesus had 30 years of growing up, learning the word, being at sanctuary, before he did three years of ministry and consummated a new covenant. That's 30 years of not being the Messiah for Jews. It was quiet, under the radar work. We only get a few glimpses of Jesus as a child. But he grows up and just is diligent in doing what he's supposed to do for 30 years. Moses spent 40 years herding sheep. 40 years. So you think, I want to serve the Lord. I want to do it tomorrow. And what if God says, well, I got something for you to do for 40 years before I'm going to use you. I want to refine you before I can shine. And that happens all the time. And one of the things in human arrogance is we think we're going to shine before we have to go through the work. That's a tough thing to do. Anyways, verse 8. The doorway for the middle story was on the right side of the temple. They went up by stairs to the middle story from the, first, from the middle to the third. He's talking about those apartments on the side. There's one door to go in, and the stairways to get up to the second and third level are inside. In other words, if you're living in the temple courtyard or living next to the temple, there's one way in. Think about the imagery there. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no way to the Father but by me. There's one entrance. For the Holy of Holies, there's one entrance. They didn't obviously obey U.S. fire code where you need an ingress and an egress to all buildings. This was a problem when the Romans took over and burnt them all alive inside the temple. Uh, one entrance, no exit. Same way today. Verse 9. So he built the temple and finished it. And he paneled, in the Hebrew, the word paneled there means covering. So think of like 70s paneling, you know, in a house. It, it was paneled, the temple with beams and boards of cedar. And he built side chambers against the entire temple, each five cubits high. And they were attached to the temple with cedar beams laying on top of those pieces. Fine building materials. And our father's house has many rooms. Like this adds rooms from what the tabernacle had if you think about it. And the, the heavenly temple, of which this is a shadow of, is Jesus said, I'm going to a place to prepare a place for you, and my Father's house has many rooms. And when he's saying that, he's right next to the temple, right? I'm going to build a temple. There's a heavenly temple coming, and there's going to be millions of rooms around the side where people can hang out. So sons would typically build an addition to the house of their father, 
as they went off to get married. And the father would have to inspect the house and say, you, my son, have successfully built a house on the side of the family's house. And when that gets done, then the father would tell the son, go ahead and get your bride and bring her back. Same imagery applies to Jesus. He's going to prepare a place for us. And the imagery of this temple fits right into all of that. And as soon as that place is ready, the father will tell the son, go ahead and get your bride and bring her back. And that would be us, the church. John 14, 2. In my father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, and I will come again to receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This is the plan. It's always been the plan. Verse 11. Then the word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, Concerning this temple which you are building, if you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, keep all my commandments, and walk in them, then I will perform my word to you, which I spoke to your father David. And I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will not forsake my people Israel. God made a promise to Abraham, and he repeated that promise with his son Isaac, and then he repeated that promise again to his son Jacob. He's doing the same thing here. He made a promise to David, and he's repeating it to Solomon. And the idea is, keep going generationally and follow what I've said. Jesus made the same kind of promises to his disciples, and he taught them to make disciples of all nations. In other words, the next generation then knows what I taught you. And for 2,000 years, Christians have been teaching the next generation, what does it mean to walk with the Lord? to keep his statutes, to follow his commandments. What does this look like? 2 Samuel 7. God says, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously. Since that time I commanded the judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest among all your enemies. Also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. Israel goes through periods of struggle, and then God gives them rest. And this pattern gets repeated in larger and larger time increments. We go through this season of struggle, but our hope is in the rest of the Lord that's to come. And that's the promise. So when God builds, it's for the people. God doesn't need a house. He doesn't build for himself. He builds for us. God doesn't need a building, but they needed a place where they could stop and be at rest for a while. That's the Davidic covenant gets confirmed in Solomon. There's also a messianic promise in what God told to David. 2 Samuel 7, when your days are fulfilled, you and, and you rest with your fathers, when you're dead, I will set up a seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Clearly talking about Solomon, right? Then the next verse, he shall build a house for my name, the temple, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Did the temple last forever? Did Solomon last forever? So where he's talking about Solomon in one sense, this is like, wait a second, this is an image of an eternal covenant that's to come. Was Jesus of the seed of David? Yep, he's from the house of Judah. Did he establish a house for the Lord? Jesus said, I'm going to make a church, and my presence will abide in that church. Yes, he did. Does that kingdom last forever? Yep. And so it looks like a messianic kind of prophecy. So we should read this about the temple as the significant covenant, and it's as significant as what God said at Sinai to Moses. It's, and that's the whole book of Hebrews, right? This thing with Jesus is equated to the thing with Moses on Sinai and now on Mount Moriah. God travels with his people for a season, then he gives them rest. 
God travels with the church for a season, and then he's going to give us rest in a new Jerusalem where we'll be able to reside and be at peace. It's just awesome. Verse 14, I'm going to read a huge chunk here. So Solomon built the temple and he finished it. Good for Solomon. He built the inside walls of the temple with cedar boards from the floor of the temple to the ceiling. He paneled the inside with wood. He covered the floor of the temple with planks of cypress. Then he built the 20-cubit roof at the rear of the temple from floor to ceiling with cedar boards. He built it inside as the inner sanctuary is the most holy place. It's important to know about cedar that it's one of the most rot-resistant woods we have. That's why we use it for outdoor furniture. It just doesn't rot like normal woods do. It's almost kind of supernaturally special as a wood. If anybody does carpentry, you appreciate cedar. It's truly a unique wood. But the indicator of a cedar plank, the reason you use it, is that it's really resistant to rot and mold and sin. Like it's a sinless wood, if that's possible. Verse 18, the inside of the temple was cedar carved with ornamental buds and open flowers. It was all cedar and there was no stone to be seen. And it smells good. It's like cedar. You got to smell it. Verse 19, and he prepared the inner sanctuary inside the temple and to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. That gets moved later, not yet. And the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high. It's a big box. He overlaid it with pure gold, overlaid the altar of cedar. So Solomon overlaid the inside of the temple with pure gold. He stretched gold chains in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. In the tabernacle, there's a giant veil, remember? Red, purple, and blue, woven with cherubim. And in the first temple, there's a golden chain. And gold's the image of heaven or a heavenly metal. And it separates the holy of holies where God resides from the people of God. And that separation stays in the second temple as a huge veil too. There's something in between God and humans. There's a separation that God's holy and we're not. And the veil gets torn when Jesus uh, dies on the cross. Very symbolic. The gold chain in verse 21 is that same idea. There's a heavenly separation between the pure and the impure. 22, the whole temple gets overlaid with gold until he finishes all the temple. Also, he overlaid with gold the entire altar that was by the inner sanctuary. So you get a sense of when you walk into the Holy of Holies, everything's gold. And if you remember, there's a table with showbread, fellowship and food. There's an incense altar with prayer, a symbol of prayer. And you've got the menorah, which is the light of the word of God. And that light on the menorah, seven candles, would be bouncing off this gold in a thousand directions. So having those light sources inside a golden room, and the, one of the aspects of gold is that when you refine it and smelt out the, the nastiness, it's the purest of metals. It's why we use it in rings. It never tarnishes, just like cedar doesn't rot. It's one of the purest metals that will stay gold as long as you own it. So you've got cedar and gold being used. The inside of this is beautiful. There's an indication in verse 22, the whole temple he overlaid with gold. Some people think that just means the inside is done, but there are some people that read that as the whole, like Solomon went all out and did the whole temple in gold. So that makes this a massive amount of gold that gets used. Um, that list, in ver the list of metals that are used there, $100 billion by today's number in metals alone. Like the amount of wealth that Solomon had to have has really not seen a lot of comparable kinds of wealth up until the modern age. So, no comparable value. 
Verse 23, inside the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. So you'd walk in and instead of having an idol of the God there, there's these two cherubim on either side that are guarding the presence of God. But they'd be like, to look at that and you say 10 cubits high, well, that's like 15 feet tall. These things are massive. And I think they're there like grandma's watching grandkids. When the high priest walks in there, there are two cherubims staring down at him. You know, and there's just this honesty that comes, like you're in the presence of something. Um, yet it's interesting because these are not images of the God. They're images just of this angel guardian that's, that's watching over things that are going on. So one wing of the cherubim was five cubits. Another wing of the cherubim was five cubits. Ten cubits from the tip of one wing to the other. In other words, if you put these two cherubim together, there's two wings that go over the arc area, and the other wings would be touch, touching the walls of the sides. So these are just massive statues. The other cherub, verse 25, was 10 cubits. Both cherubim were the same size and shape. The height of one cherub was 10 cubits, and so was the other cherub. And then he, it's very specific. And then he sent the cherubim inside the inner room, and they stretched out the wings of the cherubim so that the wing of one touched the wa one wall and the wing of the other touched the other wall. And their wings touched each other in the middle of the room, and he also overlaid the cherubim with gold. Everything's gold. Everything's pure. Great attention to the inner room, which is odd because that's God's space. Like the high priest doesn't even go in there except for once a year. Super sacred kind of space. It's kind of cool with God's work that from the outside it maybe doesn't look like much. This is why some people argue that that gold overlay was on the inside but not the outside. When, when people look at the church from the outside, it doesn't look like much. Just a bunch of people doing Bible study, right? But when you're in the church and you see the holiness that's there and you, it, it affects your life, there's nothing more precious. And I think that that's the difference between having an inside that's pure and an inside that's corrupt. When you've tasted purity, you thirst for it and you want more of it because you realize this is where life, this is where I find life and nothing else in the world has that. So the inner holy of holies has these guardians over the Ark of the Covenant, a symbol that God's trying to reach humanity. There's gold everywhere. Under the gold is cedar, so there's this wafting smell from the incense, the oil that's burning on the lamp, and then add in a little tinge of cedar. It's one of the best candle smells you've ever had. It's all an image of heaven. Heaven is fellowship, prayer, and, and that communion in the word of God being the light unto our path. And, and it sounds super simple, and it is really simple, but it's, it's eternally powerful. And that's why we sing songs like, Christ is enough for me. Like, that is it. That's all I need in life. I don't need more. That's the party. Peace and rest, being right relationship with my God. I'm ready to meet him. Bring it. And then you got these gold chains. It's not a perfect sanctuary. You don't have full access yet because even though God's given the nation and he's given them the tribe and he's given them the place to build the temple, he hasn't given them the name that's going to reside there for all eternity. We don't know who the Messiah is. Those chains are going to stay in place or the veil is going to stay there until we know the last piece of God's puzzle. The whole temple he overlaid with gold Verse 22. So visually, this shines for miles. If it is overlaid on the outside, you'd see this from miles away. It'd be gorgeous. Even if it's just the marble on the outside, it would still be pretty beautiful. 
Verse 29. Then he carved all the walls of the temple all around, both the inner and outer sanctuaries. He carved with cherubim palm trees. Why are there palm trees? So I called Trevor, our messianic friend. He's like, I don't know. Like, nobody knows. So here's a theory, and this isn't biblical. This is just Sean. My theory is God's preparing a place that has palm trees. <laughs> so, and, it, and you think about it, this is why we like going to the Caribbean. Like, it's a little closer to that image. Um, there are palm trees in the Middle East um, and open flowers. Like, God loves what he created. It's beautiful. Verse 30, in the floor of the temple, he overlaid with gold in the inner and outer sanctuaries. All of this is to glorify God. All of this wonderful craftsmanship is to lift God up. For the entrance of the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and the doorposts were one-fifth of the wall. And the two doors were of olive wood, and he carved on them figures of cherubim, palm trees, open flowers, overlaid them with gold. He spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So they carve it into the cedar, and then they overlay everything with gold, and the indent of the carvings, you can see all these pictures, and they look like they're carved in gold, right? It would add a depth to the gold overlay. And the two doors were of cypress wood. The two panels compromised one folding door. And the two panels compromised the other folding door. You say folding doors. They didn't, have, they didn't necessarily, they would kind of bend in on themselves like a, like a room separator, right? Then he carved the cherubim, palm trees, and the open flowers on them and overlaid them with gold, applied evenly on the carved work. And he built the inner court with three rows of hewn stone and a row of cedar beams. So this is a pattern that looks a lot like the tabernacle. It's a shadow of heaven. It's a pattern, Exodus 25. The people draw close to this place. There's a courtyard that's out in front. So you got the temple building. Nobody really gets to go in the Holy of Holies. The priest's service inside the temple replacing the showbread. But outside that building, there's a great courtyard where the people would meet. Outside that, there's another courtyard, which is called the Courtyard of the Women. So then there would be a place for women to meet. This is where the women's Bible study happened. Outside of that, there was a Courtyard of the Gentiles. Courtyard of the Gentiles was huge. And it was the place where all of God's people could come and be there. This is an image of heaven. There will be a special place for the Israelites. There will be a huge place for Gentiles. This is why Jesus got so ticked off when they were doing buying and selling out in the Courtyard of the Gentiles. That wasn't a place for buying and selling. That was a place Gentiles should have felt welcome to come, and the first century Jews had started to make the Gentiles feel like they weren't welcome. So it was, a, it, it, it was offensive to God to see that. This is like God's house. There's a special place for his children. There's a big, huge space for us Gentiles to show up too. John 2.16, And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Don't make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Jesus was burnt about this stuff. This was a place for worship, not for sales. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build the temple. They're talking about Herod's temple. It took seven years to build Solomon's temple took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Jesus said, this temple is an image of what I'm going to build, and I'm going to build something new. 
So they put the body on the cross, and in three days, God raises it up. It's a fulfillment of everything God said would happen. Cedar resists rot. Jesus never saw rot in a tomb. He wasn't there long enough. Gold is a symbol of purity. Jesus never sinned. He was absolutely pure. He was tried three times, two by Jewish leaders, once by Gentile leaders. Nobody could find any fault in him. He was gold. He was pure. Jesus lives without sin, and, he, and he's tried accordingly. Jews then are still fixated on the building and the law by the time Jesus shows up. And because they're so fixated on the temple, they don't even hear him when he says there's a new covenant coming. It's crazy. So he resurrects. What instantly happens upon Jesus' resurrection is you have a foundational stone for a new kind of temple called the church. And that church cannot be killed. It can't be taken away because it's not of this world. It's the Holy Spirit drawing people into the study of God's word and the fellowship of the saints and the worship of the kingdom. It can pop up anywhere. The communists tried to squish it. Churches popped up everywhere, right? In Eastern Europe, they tried to squish it. The Nazis tried to squish it, and it just kept popping up everywhere. South America, they tried to squish it, and it just keeps popping up everywhere. The Romans, they tried. They gave a good scout's effort at wiping out the church, and then they became the church. Right? The Vikings tried to knock out some missionaries, and then they became Swedes. Right? The Gauls, they hated the Christians when they first showed up, and then they became the French. You know, and Joan of Arc starts shouting the name of the Lord. Like This happens all over the world throughout history. Try to kill the church and watch the church rise up. I just love it. It's so awesome. Matthew 12, 6. I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. Jesus was the better temple. And the church is the better temple. All types of stones build the church. Purity covers it all. It's rot-free. No human can mess it up because it's not of human make. Verse 37 in our chapter. In the fourth year of the foundation of the house of the Lord, it was laid in the month of Ziv. And in the 11th year, in the month of Bool, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its detail, according to all its plans. So he was seven years in building it. A number of perfection in Jewish history. This is icing on the cake that it took seven years. Perfect. Like it's just one of those, boom, and it took seven years. Millions of pounds of wheat going back and forth, thousands of tons of oil and lumber and all that, and boom, it took seven years. That's a marker of the spot where the new covenant's going to come on this planet. The marking of Jerusalem as the house of God becomes the marking place for where the Messiah is going to make his claim on the new covenant. So God put a giant X marks the spot on planet Earth that could be seen from space so that we could find it and it would be nice and easy for us. And it's the foundation of a more glorious plan. This is another indicator of Solomon's wisdom. He just obeyed God. And so, again, this book has been led by Solomon being gifted with wisdom. Doing God's work and building God's house, that is God's work. That is wisdom. God told Moses the plan. He told David the plan. And God himself comes up to us in Jesus Christ to tell us the plan. And it's all laid out for us. It's a shame that we have so many believers that don't understand the Old Testament. Because this is beautiful. This is rock-solid stuff. Christ is the temple, and in resurrection, he institutes communions and the idea of church that will be a house for his name. The name of the Lord embodies the saints. When we go forth, we do it in the name of Jesus Christ. 
when we pray, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ because his name is being represented by us. Don't mess with that. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. When you become a Christian and take the Lord's name and represent that to the people around you, that's a huge responsibility because now you're a resting place for God's name. People look at you and you're that Christian person that they know. Don't, don't treat that sloppily. Matthew 26, 26. As they were eating, Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body, which he just called the temple. So when we partake of communion with other believers, we're saying we're part of the temple. And we join in on it. That makes communion a really significant thing. Some people ask, like, should I take communion or not? And I'm like, I don't know, where's your heart? Don't be sloppy when you take communion. Like, if your heart's not in the right place, don't belittle the name of God by taking that communion. Like, that's even worse, it, you know, than people thinking you're a sinner because you didn't take communion. Let them think what they want to think. Don't mess with the name of God. So the fellowship meal that he said that at was Passover, right? This idea when God just overlooks the sins of people, to, to the, just the blood of the lamb, he passes over households. The church, then, is the body of Christ, which is a new covenant, and we partake of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. None of us build the house up alone. None of us get the glory. That's like, think about that, Christians. None of us get the credit for any of it. But together, we become the church and the church gets the glory and the glory goes straight to God. Romans 12, 5. I'm going to wrap up on this thought and one more reference. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. In order for us to glorify God, we actually do it together. That's amazing. I could teach to a wall and nobody would hear it and God would not get the glory. I can teach to you all and like you all hear different things. That's my favorite part afterwards. It's like you're like, oh, this was just speaking to me. And it's the Holy Spirit just works through it. And when we work together, frankly, I couldn't teach if like the anchor people didn't rent us this place and they're believers. You know, we couldn't, I couldn't teach if I didn't have good caffeine in my system. Like all of this stuff plays together. In fact, I don't think as a body of Christ, any of us individually can do anything that really glorifies God. But together we do it all. Like God does everything through us. Why does he want us to do that? He doesn't need a house. He wants us to be in relationship with him. He does it because he loves us. One last reference, and we'll wrap up for the night. 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, the temple, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. <laughs> i just leave you a little conviction. Because you are part of the temple, because you're part of the body of Christ, and you represent and house the name of God, you're held accountable to how and in what ways you helped to participate in that project. And it doesn't matter what you do. It matters that you do. And I think for some people, they think that there's better and worse roles to play. No, there's not. Just show up and be there and bless people. The easiest way you can help build the body of Christ, find one other person to pray for and encourage as we go into pray time tonight. Then you're, in, you're building up the body of Christ because that person across from you is another stone in the temple. And the way in which you can refine and help that stone be there, we refine and then we shine. Same way as the temple. I just think this is great. Before he builds his own palace, Solomon builds the house for God. Nothing wrong with taking care of your life. Put the things of God first. 
and all of those other things get added. So next chapter, next week, Solomon's going to build one of the most glorious palaces in the world. And God's fine with Solomon's wealth and his opulence. In fact, he's fine with it because God gets the first glory in Solomon's work. The first project is the God project. And everything else is okay with God. And I just think that's an interesting thing. It's not prosperity gospel, but it definitely plays into that idea that God's perfectly okay with us doing things for ourselves, but we put God's things first, as Solomon did. So next week we'll get into even more building projects of Solomon showing his wisdom and how he builds his kingdom. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we love you. What an honor that we can open up your word. Uh, without hesitation, but with this anticipation, Lord, that each week you're going to feed us things that are going to just nurture our soul and take care of us. Lord, your word is alive and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, we're just reading about building specs this week, but we know that all these things are an image of things to come. And in that, you just take us on this trail through your word where you've tied it all together. Thank you. Lord, you didn't have to do that for us, and you did, and you did it because you loved us. Lord, may every person in this room just know and understand to the deepest part of their soul that you love them and you adore them, and you wove human history over 5,000 years because of that person, because you love them, because you love me. Lord, I don't understand it, bigger than me. Your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are, are larger than my thoughts. But I just say thank you. Thank you, Lord, for loving each one of us, for bringing us together. Lord, we take the responsibility of church seriously. And we go to a lot of different churches in this room. But Lord, help us contribute to those churches. Help us to be a blessing to what you're building in those places. And Lord, may your Holy Spirit reside in us in a way that's all-powerful. May it shine out because you're purifying us day by day and nothing stop us. Lord, may the aroma of that cedar wood in our lives, may it be something that's just a blessing to the people around us, that there's an aroma of a godly person that just permeates each room we walk into, Lord, spiritually. Lord, we love you and we thank you. You're a blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Stop giggling. <laughs>